Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have an amazingly educational evening for you tonight. Mike Bush is here, CEO of Savvy Aviation. We are going to talk about the new Continental Airworthiness Directive that recently came out, as well as safe cylinder changes and much, much more. Before we get started, just a few things. First of all, there are only 25 days left if you are an AMP with an inspection authorization to get your renewal in. And one of the ways of doing that is to get your annual eight hours of continuing education, all of which is available for free on Social Flight. All you need to do is go to socialflight.com or the Social Flight mobile apps for Apple or Android devices. It's all completely free. There is an FAA credits section there. Sign in and that will give you all of these courses that you can take. In addition to the AMP and IA side of things, we also have WINGS courses where you can get tons of WINGS credits. The same thing, you watch a course, you take a quiz, you get, uh, if it is a uh, for your IA, you get a certificate that can legally be used for your renewal. Otherwise, we automatically send credit through to the FAA system, and uh, it's just something you should definitely check out. It's a wonderful tool and utility in order to use. In addition to that, we just completed one section of our Fly to Win Challenge. We gave away a Lightspeed Zulu 3 headset, and now we've got another headset to give away. And so all you need to do is use those apps, a social flight app, and get out there and fly. You get points and then you can just compete in our drawing to win all sorts of wonderful things. Tonight's broadcast is brought to us by UAvionics, uh, their AV30, AV20 electronic flight instruments, as well as their Sky Beacon, Sky Sensor, and Tail Beacon X. It's, it's really, I tell you, we are putting that equipment in the Mustang that's being built here behind me, and uh, I, I absolutely love it. It's fantastic avionics. You can check out all that, and coming full circle, there are actually courses on how to install them and how to use them in that Social Flight FAA Learning Center. Now, to begin the program with tonight's guest. Mike Bush is arguably best, the best known airframe and power plant mechanic in general aviation. He founded Savvy Aviation in 2008 to provide aircraft maintenance, management, and consulting services to thousands of aircraft owners, including pre-buy management, innovative engine monitor analysis, 24-7 breakdown assistance, and that's essentially like having AAA for general aviation, and even the question and answer service. There's all these different levels that you can have through Savvy Aviation, and I think it has really changed the landscape for how maintenance works throughout general aviation. Mike has authored hundreds of articles and four books on aircraft ownership and maintenance. And tonight he is here to talk about the new Continental Airworthiness Directive, as well as safe cylinder removal and installation and more. I'm gonna bring Mike on the line now. Please help me welcome to Social Flight Live, Mike Bush. How are you doing, Mike? Jeff, well, well, first hey. of all, I, I, I have to tell you that, um, 
I decided to do something very high risk and um, use social flight to renew my IA this year. And I knew that if it didn't work, there was going to be hell to pay. And by God, <laughs> it worked. Congratulations. <laughs> you got your IA education through social flight. I am honored, I just, my friend. I just had to try it. I just had to make sure it worked. So, and it did. It did. Excellent. So, Excellent. So, you, so is that the new norm? Is this how you think you're probably going to do it? The old ways are gone, huh? Well, I, I, I definitely think it's a great step forward. I think that, uh, you know, I, I used to have to have to trot down to the airport at, at, at an appointed time and sit down with my principal maintenance inspector and show him that I had grease under my fingernails. I had a special little thing of grease that I used right before I went down there. You know? <laughs> and now it's, now it's all done. It's, it's, it, we're, we're, I guess we're kind of like permanently in COVID mode where it's all done remotely now. I think it's probably going to just stay that way. Yes, my fiance Heidi uh, calls it the gifts of COVID, the things that have changed and they're never going back. Yeah, no, I think that's good. Now, the other thing I wanted to say is I, you really surprised me because there's this big board behind you of, of all of the different companies that sponsor you. And when you said tonight's broadcast is sponsored by UAVionics instead of Continental Motors, I was really surprised by that. <laughs> Continental just sponsored a recent one, and we don't want to appear too biased. Uh, okay, this is an okay, well. honest review of their <laughs> airworthiness directive, and I think had this program brought to us by them, people might not believe everything that we're going to say. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, air, airworthiness directives are one of my favorite subjects. I've been involved with a lot of them. I've even kind of even wrote one once, <laughs> pretty much wrote one. So Wow. Well, uh, yes, and and much I will say, uh, much of social flight is very much brought to us by Continental, and uh, obviously I have their cylinders that I did on my plane, and so I have had a very good experience uh, uh, with them. I think they're a fantastic company with great yeah. products. This obviously is a challenging time because they're facing an airworthiness directive. We are all facing an airworthiness directive, and it all has to do with counterweights. So, can can we start by getting oriented a little bit? Would you explain to everyone what a, an, a, an internal counterweight is in an engine and what it does? You, you have any nice pictures you can put I up? I do. I do. I bet you, I, I you might. That one. Let's, uh, um, let's, bring, let's bring one up. It, it's kind of a very weird uh, deal. Um, the... The, the crankshaft in, a, in uh, an aircraft engine has um, all these connecting rods connected uh, along the length of it for the various cylinders. Um, and all of the engines that are affected by this AD are six-cylinder engines. So there's six different cylinders that are, that are ex exerting power pulses against this crankshaft. And the load on the crankshaft is way in the front where the propeller is, unless you happen to be in a pusher, in which case it's way in the back. But at any rate, it's way at the end. And so the, the, the path between the front cylinders and the propeller is pretty short. The path between the rearmost cylinders and the propeller is quite long. And the, the further away the, the, the piston is that's, that's producing power from the load, the more the crankshaft wants to twist. Now, 
if, if you've ever picked up an aircraft crankshaft, it's a very impressively heavy hunk of metal. But we're putting an awful lot of load on it, and it actually twists a measurable amount. And um, it, it does that, uh, I don't know, 20 times six times per second. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, so in, in order to um, minimize the, the torsional stress on the crankshaft and protect it from the possibility of repetitive stress fatigue over time, because a, a typical crankshaft has a very long life, probably 15 years. Um, they, the, the rearmost counterweights on the crankshaft are, are not fixed to the crankshaft, but are movable. They, they wiggle. And they wiggle in such a way that they absorb some of the torsional stress uh, so that the crankshaft doesn't have to absorb it. Uh, basically, they're they're kind of resonant, and they they wind up um, sort of counteracting the, the 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 power pulses of those rearmost cylinders. Um, the the lower powered engines in this group, the three sixties and the four seventies, only have one pair of counterweights way at the back, which is why they only have to have one cylinder removed to to accomplish this this inspection that this AD calls for. Um, most of the engines have have uh, two pairs of counterweights and and two cylinders need to be removed. And the big bruiser, the 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 Gitzo 520 engine that that powers the Cessna 421 and some Aero Commanders and stuff, um, they have lots of counterweights. And so all three cylinders on one side of the engine have to be removed. In fact, the counterweights on the Gitzo crankshaft aren't even enough, and they had to add a a a a torsional dampener as part of the uh, starter adapter assembly on those engines, which has turned out to be a very problematic component <laughs> as as well. But um, be, because that engine is being asked to put up with a tremendous amount of torsional stress uh, and the crankshaft rotates a whole lot faster because it's a geared engine. Um, but most of the engines, the, 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 the 520s and 550s that represent the majority of these affected uh, engines um, have two pairs of these movable counterweights, and, uh, and, and so two cylinders need to come on. And yeah, that photograph that you have, have up on the screen is, is showing uh, one of the movable counterweights, and the counterweight is secured to uh, blades that are forged into the crankshaft. Um, the blades have little bushings in them, and then there are some pins that go through the bushings, and the pins are connected to the to these counterweights by by some plates that are secured by by snap rings, um, and the pins don't fit tightly in the bushings; they fit loosely in the bushings, which allows the counterweight to wiggle. So if you just grab that thing, uh, you could wiggle it. Yeah, and, and, you, and it actually has a very precise amount of wiggle. <laughs> And the and the different um, counterweights on the crankshaft have different amounts of wiggle. It causes cause them to be resonant at different frequencies. So it's a very complicated uh, set of engineering to get all those counterweights exactly right. But the idea yeah. is the counterweights are connected to the crankshaft through 
bushings and pins and plates that hold the pins in and snap rings that hold the plates in. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's the, it all has to be assembled exactly right. And if it isn't, um, yeah, it's possible for, <laughs> for one of these counterweights to what they call, they call it a counterweight release, which is a euphemism for <laughs> a disaster. Yeah. And, uh, um, that's that's what triggered all of this was that, that there were three known cases, I guess, of, of counterweight release. Uh, fortunately, two of them happened on the ground. And yep. when a counterweight releases, uh, it can lock the engine up just tight. You can't turn the prop no matter what, because that counterweight becomes a big pall that kind of digs into the into the crankcase. If it happens in flight, it you know poke a big hole in the side of the case and let all the engine out, all the oil out and stuff. So it's not, not a very pleasant thing to happen. And apparently three engines were, were affected by this and that's what triggered all of this stuff. Yep. I, uh, I, I spoke at one point uh, a while ago with one of the design, original designers, a, a gentleman that was around quite a while ago as an engineer. And I always thought this design is so incredibly eloquent that the, it literally what you mentioned of that pin being a smaller diameter in that hardened um, uh, kind of bushing area, it, it basically just rides in like a dancer on the ice, like a, you know, it's seeing someone like an ice skater pulling their arms in and then they go faster or putting their arms out and then they go slower. That is that as you get acceleration and deceleration pulses in that twisting you mentioned, then that counterweight just moves in a little bit on that arc or moves mm -hmm. out a little bit on that arc and just allows, allows that to be relieved. It's, it's fascinating design actually. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting. If, you know, if, if you or I were trying to solve the problem, we, this is not the approach we would have come up with <laughs> as it woke up one morning and say, Oh, I know how to solve this. <laughs> we'll just put some wiggly counterweights on there. But, it's, I think it's, a lot uh, of these, a lot of things in aviation and especially in engines came from like the days of giants when there were people, the yeah. ones that invented everything from carburetors to engines and came up with some really, you know, this, really this amazing is, things. This is not the first very painful uh, airworthiness directive that had to do with this particular system. Uh, if you recall uh, back in uh, 1999, I believe it was, there was a massive uh, emergency AD that involved uh, a much larger number of engines actually than this one does um, where uh, tiger teams went all around the country pulling cylinders off of engines and checking uh, crankshafts for for damage and what happened was that when, when these when these uh, crankshafts are manufactured at the factory there's a big hydraulic press that pushes the bushings into the the blades on the on the crankshaft forging, and one of those hydraulic presses apparently got, was messed up, and when it was pressing bushings into the crankshafts, a part of that press was was nicking um, a, a little part of the of, of the of the crankshaft throw, and was fracturing the nitride case on it and creating a, a, a potential failure point. And they had a, a couple of crankshafts shear. And when they went to find out why, you know, what caused the crankshafts to fail, it turned out that it was this press that was damaging the crankshafts. And they had no idea how many crankshafts 
were damaged this wave. So they had to go out and basically pull cylinders off and, and get an ultrasonic uh, testing guy out there to test all these crankshafts in this area to see whether they'd been damaged by this machine or not. Uh, very, wow. very painful AD. Um, that, I think it was 99 that that happened. So let, let's take a look. This is one up close. This is a, a closer view. Oh, nice picture. Uh, 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 thanks to Ryan Dickerson for this from Savvy. Mm -hmm. And um, if, if Western Skyways. Yes. Um, yeah. So take us through what, what, we, what we're inspecting for. Uh, what has to be done here? Well, um, the, uh, by pins, and the pins are, are pressed into place, and then uh, the, um, and, but they're not, they're not a tight fit, they're a loose fit. And then these, then these uh, steel discs, these, these plates are pressed into the ends and secured by these, um, by these circlips, by the, these snap rings. Um, they call them, I guess they call them uh, counterweight retaining rings in the, in, in the uh, service bulletin. And the retaining rings have to be inserted. Um, first of all, they have to be inserted with the, the sharp edge out, uh, which apparently was not the problem here. And they also have to be inserted with the with, with the two ends uh, facing toward the crankshaft rather than away from the crankshaft. So the centrifugal force when the thing is spinning tightens the rig in, in the groove rather than loosening it. And finally they the they have to be fully engaged in the in the retaining groove, uh, which means that the, the the two ends of the of the ring have to be a certain minimum distance apart, indicating that the that the snap ring is fully engaged in the groove. And apparently sometime in, in mid uh, 2021, something bad started happening on the continental assembly line. We don't know what, and, and some of these, um, some of these retaining rings were not inserted properly. Um, they may have either been not fully engaged or not in the proper orientation or both. And that's what this is all checking for. We we don't know how often this happened. We we, we just know that 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 a few of them were found to be out, and um, they somehow dated back to something that happened back in in mid twenty one. And uh, and so basically all of the crankshaft assemblies that came out of Mobile from mid twenty one to February of twenty three need to be checked which involves pulling cylinders off and putting a special measuring tool in there to check that, well, first of all, inspecting it with a flashlight and mirror to make sure that it's oriented correctly, and then inserting a special measuring tool to make sure that the uh, snap ring is fully engaged. Got it. So tell us a little bit about the, the, the process. I know we have, like, you know, this is one of the tools that's, that's right here, and this is what yeah. we're, we're actually measuring. This tool is from Continental. And um, yeah, when, the, when the service bulletin first came out, it basically gave a drawing of that tool and said, go to your local machine shop and, and have one made. And then the revision of the service bulletin said, oh, by the way, we have a bunch of loaners. Call this, call yes. this number and we'll, we'll, we'll loan you one. So <laughs> and I, I guess you took them up on that. 
So let, let's talk about that for a minute because this this whole process moved very, very, very quickly. From yeah. the time that there was any news out, which I believe first came out from Cirrus, um, to the time that there was a service bulletin from Continental, to the time that there was an airworthiness directive, to the time that you could call a dedicated phone number or, or, or uh, something in the phone tree and get a specialist to explain everything you needed to know and then even send out the exact tool was um, it was days, like a handful of days, and all those steps were done. Yeah. Tell me, tell me what the a little bit about the process. Well, I'm not I'm not sure exactly what process you're talking about, but I have I have to say that um, in in this particular case, it seems to me that that Continental acted with with excellent corporate citizenship, something that has not always been the case in the past when, when bad things happen to engine companies, but they immediately fessed up to the error. They were able to identify when, when, when the period of risk started. They um, issued the service bulletin quite promptly and they, uh, they revised it once. Uh, but, and they, um, most importantly, perhaps they, they offered to pay for the whole thing. <laughs> um, now these are relatively low time engines, um, but they they basically and they offered a what was everybody seems to agree was pretty reasonable warranty consideration. For example, to remove uh, remove and replace two cylinders, um, uh, they're they're offering eighteen hours of 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 labor uh, at whatever the shop's labor rate is. And everybody agrees that's that's pretty reasonable. It, it might be just a little short for some turbocharged ones. It's probably a little bit long, a little bit generous for some normally aspirated ones, but it's pretty reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they they seem to be taking full responsibility for this, which is not something that I've always seen over the years when when bad things happen. But in this case, I think they're they they they've been very well behaved as as corporate mm-hmm. citizens. Um, so uh, take us through the process as you understand it um, today of doing this, because one of the biggest things that, that comes up, and then we'll transition to that, is the concern that people have about removing cylinders. Obviously, you have been mm. uh, a, a very strong and vocal advocate. I subscribe to your philosophy as well of we don't remove cylinders unless it's a last resort, essentially, unless, unless you, you really can't solve it while it's on the engine and you've really proven that you need to remove the cylinder. Here's a case where the Airworthiness Directive is requiring it, and um, I think a lot of people are nervous about being invasive in their engine. They, want to, they don't want to be worse off afterwards than they started. Yeah, I mean, you bring up a, a, an interesting point, because one, one of my long-standing beefs about the whole Airworthiness Directive process as the FAA carries it out is is that um, the FAA has to go through quite an elaborate uh, process to assess the risk of a uh, of a condition to determine whether uh, it justifies issue the the heavy handedness of issuing an AD. Um, and in this case, I think it clearly did. I don't think anybody is arguing that there shouldn't have been an AD. Um, Although there is a difference between the service bulletin and the airworthiness directive in who it affects. Yeah, that, that, this is true, and we can get to that. But the, what, what the FAA has not 
is is not really part of their process and 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 it's always been kind of a concern of mine is that that they they don't have a mandate to do a similar risk analysis of the of the remedial action to determine what the risk of that is in this case the 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 risk of not doing it is is a counterweight release which could ruin your whole day for sure and um, the the risk of doing it is removal and replacement of a couple of cylinders, which entails a certain amount of risk. Uh, and I think in this case, it's pretty clear that, I mean, the real the real question is, is, is the cure worse than the disease? In this case, I don't think it is. But there is certainly risk involved in removing these cylinders. Um, the risk can be almost entirely mitigated by taking appropriate precautions and there are a series of precautions that really should take every time um every time cylinder work is done not not just in the context of this ad but just any time cylinder work is done and if those precautions are taken and they're not really complicated uh but unfortunately they're not the things that are not uh, always done by mechanics in the field when they're changing cylinders. But if the appropriate precautions are taken, um, uh, then the risk it becomes fairly minimal uh, it, it with, with cylinder replacement. So we don't, we don't like to see cylinders removed unless there's a compelling reason to do so, because in the same way that, you know, we don't like to, have surgery done unless there's a compelling reason to do it. And with surgery, uh, the medical community is very good about uh, about assessing the risk versus benefits. Um, I, I think the medical community is a lot better than the maintenance community is in terms of making those assessments. Um, but you know, here's a case where the cylinder removal is clearly warranted. Not not only is it non-discretionary because the FAA is forcing us to do it, but it, it would be something we we, we would want to do even absent the FAA forcing us to do it. Maybe the number of engines affected might be a little different, but the, the, we, we clearly don't want to run the risk of, of, of a counterweight release. And since there, there was a known problem at the factory, we, we need to do this. So it, it, would you like me to just quickly go through the 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 five or so uh, precautions that 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 if we if we are religious about taking them all we, we basically yeah reduce I, the I think risk. I think one of the biggest questions people have is how to do safe cylinder removal and reinstallation which applies to this airworthiness directive but quite frankly of course it applies to all these Any, other situations anytime, anytime cylinder work is done um so uh, let let me see let me see if I can. I can get these all because I don't have a crib sheet here, <laughs> but um, the, the, the first risk involved in cylinder removal is, has to do with um, torque relieving the through bolts that hold the cylinders on, but also hold the case halves together and also hold the main bearings in place. Uh, we, we've got these through bolts that that pass laterally th through the case, 
and and they they do a whole bunch of things. Uh, they they do help hold the cylinders on, but they also clamp the two case halves together. And in doing that clamping, they 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 secure the main bearings in place. Um, and it drives me crazy what, if if to go into a shop and see an engine that has you know, all the cylinders on one side removed or even worse, all six cylinders removed on a six cylinder engine. And the through bolts are just sit, you know, sitting there with, with no nuts on them. And there's almost nothing holding that crankcase together except uh, some, some, uh, some little bolts along the, 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 the top and bottom parting seam, nothing really clamping the bearings in place. So you, you, you put a crankcase in that condition and then you rotate the the propeller, which you typically have to do during cylinder work to position each connecting rod in the right place for for the cylinder removal. And and you've created a perfect setup for what's called a displaced main bearing, which can lead to catastrophic engine failure. And I I am probably more sensitive to this than most people because I've been involved as an expert witness on a number of aircraft crash cases where uh, airplane had cylinder work done, and then the engine came apart a few hours later. Um, and it, th- this is this is pretty serious. We have to take it seriously. Mm-hmm. But the cure for this is very simple. Um, there, there are in a six-cylinder engine. There, there are four pairs of through bolts. Uh, vertical pairs of through bolts. E- each pair of through bolts holds one or two cylinders on, plus clamping the case together, plus holding the main bearing in place. And we should never allow more than one pair of through bolts to be torque relieved at a time. So if if you know if if we can keep three out of the four sets of through bolts. Um, torqued up then the case is being held together pretty firmly and 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 it's almost it's very very unlikely that any kind of bearing displacement's going to happen but if we just pull a whole bunch of cylinders off willy-nilly and, and torque relieve all the through bolts or torque relieve a whole bunch of the through bolts all at once um we're putting the 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 engine at significant jeopardy of having a, a problem with a, a bearing shifting mm-hmm. and if a bearing shifts the 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 bearings have little holes that where they get their oil from that have to line up perfectly with the holes in the in in the crankcase half bearing saddles that supply uh, oil to them. And so if the bearing shifts, it among other things, it, it impairs the oil supply to the bearing and uh, can can basically cause a, a pretty severe catastrophic engine failure. Normally, it, it throws a rod through the side of the case and that, then things go downhill from there. So, um, so how how do we do this? Well, you you can you can replace one cylinder at a time. That 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 will obey the rule of of only having one pair of through bolts torque relieved at a time. Or you can use something called torque plates, where you take a cylinder off, but then you put a a, a, a piece of metal back where the cylinder was. That allows you to 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 torque up those through bolts again, even without the cylinder being present. Then you can go on to the next set of through bolts, and so on. And and, and if you use torque plates, or if you just replace you know one cylinder at a time, 
either way, you're, you're obeying this rule of only having one pair of, uh, of, of through bolts torque relieved at a time. Hmm. So that, that's kind of the first, the, the first precaution that we need to take. The, the rest of the precautions have to do with, with, with mounting the cylinder back on the engine. Because when we put the cylinder back on the engine, it's really important to get um, the proper uh, preload on all of these fasteners. Um, and to do that, we need to do a bunch of things. We need to lubricate all of the fasteners very, very liberally. Um, Continental says do it with 50 weight oil. Lycoming says do it with a 90-10 mixture of 50 weight oil and and, and STP. There are, there are actually some purpose-made thread lubricants. Uh, Advanced Racing Products makes one that, that are really super good lubricants. Um, but we need the threads really well lubricated. And the reason is because when you torque um, a, a threaded fastener down, you, you, what, your objective is to, is to achieve a proper preload on the fastener, that is a proper amount of stretch on the fastener. Um, but we're not actually measuring the stretch. We're measuring a torque. And when we torque um, a, a, a nut down, an awful lot of the force that the torque wrench is applying does not, does not go towards stretching the fastener, but goes towards overcoming the friction of, 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 the, of, of screwing the nut onto the threads, both friction in the thread, in the thread interface, and also uh, friction on the nut face where the, the, the nut is, is, is um, uh, turning against whatever it is that it's trying to clamp down, like, like a cylinder base flange. Um, and, and so to maximize the amount of the, the torque that goes into actually stretching the fastener and minimize the amount lost in friction, we have to lubricate the heck out of everything. And most mechanics don't like to make messes, and so they tend not to put enough lubricant on these on these threads. Um, so, it, but it's very important to lubricate everything thoroughly. It's also important um, to make sure that the threads are in good shape. And probably in on these engines that are affected by the ADs, that's probably not going to be a big issue because they're low time engines. Um, they haven't probably haven't ever had cylinder work on them before, so the the threads are probably going to be in pretty good shape. Um, we want to always use new nuts on everything. We don't want to reuse the old nuts, and the reason is because all of these um, fasteners, the nuts and 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 the studs and the through bolts, are cadmium plated, uh, and the cad plating is put on for two reasons. One one is um, uh, to uh, inhibit corrosion, uh, and the other is to uh, minimize friction because the, the cadmium, uh, cadmium plating is very slippery. But it's also exceedingly thin. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, a couple thousandths thick. And so the act of, of removing a cylinder, putting one back on, uh, erodes a lot of the cad plating. By using new nuts, we at least on the nut side of it have brand new CAD plating, uh, which again helps with, with the friction. So we want to use new nuts, don't reuse the old ones. We're going to lubricate the threads very thoroughly. And then when we're actually doing the torquing, there, there's, uh, there's, there's some art to doing the torquing. Uh, the manual 
provides a, a, a torque sequence where basically you go around and you torque all of the, the, the base nuts on the cylinder in a particular sequence to 50% of their final torque. You get them all torqued up to 50%. Then you go back and you torque them the rest of the way up to, up to their final torque. And the through bolts uh, get more torque on them than, than, the, than, than the nuts that hold down the studs. And in Continental engines, they use these eight-point um, through bolt nuts that have a god-awful amount of torque. I mean, it's really a scary amount of torque when you're tightening that thing down. Um, so what, what's important is that when you go from the 50% torque to the final torque, that, that very final tightening step, that the torque wrench be positioned so that you can achieve the final torque in one smooth, uninterrupted motion of the torque wrench. If you start going to final torque and you run into an obstacle, like a piece of baffling or a hose or something that requires you to go back and take a second bite with the torque wrench, you, you, you typically won't get the right torque um, because uh, uh, breakaway torque is a lot higher than running torque. And so you, it's important that once you go to that step of going from 50% to the 100% final torque, you do it in one um, uninterrupted smooth motion of, of the torque wrench until it clicks. Mm. Um, so all, I don't know if I've forgotten any steps, but that, that's all the ones that come to mind right now. But if you take all these precautions of, of using torque plates and using lube and using new nuts and, and, and torquing the thing in the, with the appropriate um, uh, arm motion, um, the risk of something going wrong is vastly reduced. Uh, if you don't take those precautions, then then cylinder uh, removal and replacement can turn into a fairly risky procedure, which we don't want to see happen. Yeah. You know, one of the things that just almost almost trivia wise that came to mind is how how does this work on a new engine buildup? Right. We've seen new engines built up on a stand and and they're vertical and they have to be moved during this. And of course, by by default, the case is there with no cylinders on it yet do you happen to know how that how that works because uh, obviously we want to emulate something similar to that if we have to take off multiple cylinders um yeah well i mean if, if you think about it when they're assembling the engine at new at the factory they've got a lot of stuff going for them all of the fasteners are new uh everything is super accessible there's nothing in the way it's it's so much harder to to torque up uh, uh, the cylinder fasteners when the engine's on the airplane than it is when it's sitting on a stand where everything is just like super accessible. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you never run into problems uh, manipulating the torque wrench when you're doing it on the uh, on the production line. It's it, it's do it, trying to do it while it, while the engine's in the airplane with all kinds of obstacles in the way that that, that causes a lot of trouble. Yeah, and obviously they 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 lubricate the heck out of everything. They're not worried about making a mess on the production line. It's just uh, oh, and and they do a lot of other things. Like for example, if 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 you, you, there's no such thing as an adjustable torque wrench at the at the Continental factory, every wrench is is a is a is a purpose built tool that is that is not adjustable. 
So there's no possibility of adjusting the torque wrench to the wrong value. Um, there's, you know, they they do as much as they can at the factory to take the to the, the risk out of it. Right. And I think the procedures that they that they use at the factory work quite well. Um, you know, absent whatever happened with these snap rings, which we'll we'll never know the the full backstory of that, but. Um, but trying to do these same things in the field are, is a lot more challenging, a lot mm-hmm. more challenging. And plus the people at the factory, they do this all day long um, and, and, um, and they're, you know, very well trained in this. And the mechanics in the field vary in their, in their competence and training all, all over the map. Uh, so um, I, I, I worry much less about stuff happening at the factory I, I worry a little bit more with engines being done at field overhaul shops but most of those are still pretty good i worry the most about stuff that's being done uh, by you know kind of general mechanics in a, in a in a in a general maintenance hangar that that are not not specialists in in, in doing engine stuff yeah that don't routinely swap cylinders yeah. And, and again, you know, even then, you know, the vast majority of the time, nothing bad happens, but it, it happens. En- bad things happen enough times that it has it, gotten my attention. Yeah. Um, so, so in this case, with this airworthiness directive, you, the service building cause calls for, depending on the engine, removing one, two or three cylinders, most cylinder, most, engines out there, I think it's basically going to wind up being two cylinders, like yeah. uh, number one and three. You get access to that that we showed, and then you take this this tool and you measure that that gap. I'm going to show that picture again to make well, sure. First, first thing you do is you go in there with a flashlight mirror. You make sure there is a snap ring <laughs> uh, and a plate. <laughs> oh, and they, they, by the way, they say if, if you look in there and any parts are missing, then it's game over. The engine has to get torn down. <laughs> there you go. So uh, ho- hopefully we won't find any of those. Um, although it's possible we might, you know, there, there were a couple of counterweight releases, so you never know what's going to get found. Um, yep. And, and there, I think there is a reporting requirement for, for this. So theoretically, um, did the AD have a reporting requirement? Is the FA uh, asking to be notified? Of, I did not notice that. Found? I, I, I know that the service bulletin does, and I suspect that the that knowing the FAA that that the that the uh, that the AD probably is is going to have a requirement that the FAA be notified of anything untoward is found, so that they can they can track what's going yeah. on. But you know, assuming assuming that there is a snap rig and a and a, and a, a disc in in or a plate rather in each one of those holes uh and and that the the little ears uh point towards the the, the center of the crankshaft rather than away from it uh, then you're supposed to stick the tool in there and measure the gap between the little the two little ears of the snap ring and make sure that the gap is at least the the minimum size that 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 tool is prepared to measure and that's that gap here so the, with the three holes here that's the actual kind of plate uh, the larger half, the larger yeah. moon shape thing is the weight, and then this snap ring, if it's seated in the groove properly, this will have a spread here that this right. tool measures. Mm-hmm. Excellent. 
and, and then um, you get through and that. If, if 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 the snap ring flunks the test, or if it's oriented wrong, then the mechanic is is allowed to reorient the snap ring and attempt to get it fully engaged, and so it passes the test. Yep. Um, if uh, if he can't get the snap ring in, then he's supposed to go on the other side of the counterweight, remove the other snap ring and, and kind of disassemble things and see if he can get it all work right. And if he can't get it to work right, then the whole counterweight's going to have to come off and, and have to figure out what's, why this thing can't be assembled properly. Maybe, you know, maybe there's some, something fouling the groove or something in the, in the counterweight or something that's preventing the snap ring from, from fully engaging. But, I wouldn't expect that that would happen uh, very often. They, they're just trying to cover all the bases, yeah. you know, telling the mechanics what to do when they have this thing all apart. I know in, in, in the networking that I've done with different mechanics, I've only had a case so far of, of one uh, outside uh, that, that I've heard of that, that had to be seated that was, was found not in compliance. And I mm. believe that, I believe that was on a, a, a new crankshaft. I don't even know that it was in an end. Oh, it was sitting in inventory. May have been. Uh, those would uh, probably be the first ones that be checked because you don't have to take any cylinders <laughs> to off to check those. May or may not. I'm not sure. Maybe it was something else. Uh, maybe I got the story a little bit, but it, I'm only aware of, of one person that said that they found that they tapped it into place and, mm-hmm. you know, end of, end of story. And then they have, then they reassemble everything. Yeah. So, uh, and so it all goes back together at that point. And, uh, there's, there's one thing that is kind of interesting about it. And that I'd like to get your thoughts on that difference. I mentioned earlier of the service bulletin saying, if you've made it to 200 hours with your engine, anything beyond 200 hours, and really this doesn't apply to you versus the air witness directive came out and said, Nope, everybody's covered. Yeah, that, that's, that that all is is very interesting, and this is one of the cases where I I wish there was more transparency in the process, so that we knew exactly what was found with those three known cases. Um, um, you know, at, at this point, because the FA didn't tell us very much, and Continental told us even less. We, you know, we were reduced to speculation, but my, my speculation is that uh, if Continental, Continental Service Bulletin basically said, if, if, if the engine has over 200 hours times in service, don't worry about it, mm-hmm. which is basically their way of saying, if this is going to happen, it's going to happen real quick. Yeah. And be, since this all came out of originally this all came out of Cirrus. In fact, this was a very unusual situation in, in, in my experience. And, and I've been dealing with ADs for a long time, but w- we didn't hear about this first from Continental. We heard about this first from Cirrus. And Cirrus said, it was very unusual. They said, oh, by the way, guys, we're grounding all of our SR-22s. And wink, wink. You might want to consider grounding yours too. You know, we 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 can't make you ground your airplanes, but we're grounding all of ours until this is resolved. And then then subsequently we heard something very unofficial from Continental, and then we got the service bulletin from Continental, and then finally we we got the AD from from the FAA. So it's it's a very unusual sequence of events. 
It also but, happened very, very rapidly. Yeah, it did. So my, my speculation is that th these three counterweight releases, two on the ground and one in the air, probably came out came came from from Cirruses that that just came off the assembly line, you know, and 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 were in flight test or something like that. They probably had very very low time on them, and um, the Continental looked at it and made a determination that this was a very uh, extreme infant mortality issue that it, that that if this thing wasn't assembled correctly, it was going to come apart real quick. And, and so they said, well, if it's more than 200 hours, don't worry about it, which probably means if it's more than 50 hours, don't worry about it, you know, because they're always going to put a big safety factor on top of it. Who, who wants to take the risk of saying, don't worry about it. And then having a, you know, having one of these things with 201 hours come apart on you and a, and a big lawsuit. So, the, the, my, my speculation is that all of these known cases were extremely low time and Continental was trying to strike, strike the right balance between uh, not having an accident happen and not um, affecting any more engines than necessary. And that's always going to be a very difficult trade-off to make. And they made the trade-off that, that 200 hours was, was the a point that they were comfortable with, that, that the probability of a failure of, after 200 hours was minuscule. Hmm. And then for some reason, the, the FAA was not convinced. And, uh, you know, I can sort of see why the FAA might not have been convinced, because if you only have three data points, it's kind of hard to make your case, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that's, not a lot, that's not a lot of data. And uh, people who work for the government tend to be more risk, risk averse than people who work for industry. What can I tell you? It's just the way of the <laughs> world. So um, the, the FAA probably decided, you know, decided they weren't willing to, to take the risk of saying, if there's over 200 hours, don't worry about it. And there's yeah. probably not a huge number of these engines that are over 200 hours because the, 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 from the time window that we're talking about is is about a year and a half and the average owner flown airplane flies 100 hours a year so typical owner flown airplane if 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 it got its engine right at the very beginning of the vulnerability period in the middle of 2021 would would you know typically have 150 hours on it so the, yeah. the only engines that we're going to have over 200 hours are ones that fly a lot, probably ones that are involved in flight schools or, you know, working airplanes of some kind, which yeah. is probably not a really large percentage of, of, of the 2000 engines affected. Um, yeah, it's probably, you're, you're right. It's probably not a, a, a very substantial difference between those two. Um, before we go on, I want to uh, ask a little bit about, um, uh, cylinder removal installation in, in normal circumstances though, but it looks like your, your camera may have frozen. If we could just restart uh -huh. your camera real quick. Um, mm -hmm. I'll send a request through. We'll see if this brings you back on the line because uh, wouldn't want folks to miss out on getting to. Okay. There you go. You're back. to when I, was, when I was moving my head before it was still moving, but you said it was frozen. So I don't know. Maybe it was just for me, but we're all good now. So uh, even if it was on my end, um, 
So uh, let's talk uh, uh, in the brief time that we have a, a little bit about break-in because in this case, break-in's not a factor. It's not a requirement after you do put this in. But for the rest of the folks out there that are not subject to this airworthiness directive and are interested in everything you've been giving guidance on for cylinder removal or installation, they may be putting on new or repaired or overhauled cylinders. Um, we had a lot of questions about break-in, especially when you're only dealing with one or two cylinders. Um, tell us a little bit about, do you still follow all the guidelines for regular break-in? Do you go straight to mineral oil for everything? How do you judge it compared to the other cylinders? What are your thoughts on that? Okay, well, um, I've, 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 I have a... Um, an AOPA article that you can find on the web and also a, an EAA webinar about that subject or go into a, a lot of, a lot of detail on that. Um, the, the, the break in procedures that the manufacturers um, offer to me are overly complicated uh, and, and, and make it all seem a, a little bit more like religion than anything else. Uh, and and it's based on the fact that the, the manufacturer's procedures have to assume that the engine is mounted in an aircraft with with minimal uh, instrumentation. Um, in an airplane that 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 has a an, an engine monitor where you can see cylinder head temperature on each cylinder, um, the procedure I use is is rather different than what the what the manufacturers recommend, which tends to be, you know, fly it at 75% for a certain amount of time and then 65% for a certain amount of time and so on. Um, to, to get the, the break-in done in the minimum amount of time, we want to run the engine as hard as we possibly can, um, except that we don't want to over-temp the cylinders and the cylinders tend to run pretty hot at, at the very beginning of break-in because the, there's a, there's a very sharp hone pattern in the cylinder that we're, we're basically trying to round off the, the peaks of that hone pattern. That's what that's what the break-in's all about. And um, so, what what I recommend if you do have uh, cylinder head temperature information for each cylinder is to is to run the engine as hard as you possibly can, as close to a hundred percent power as you can get away with. Um, without the cylinder head temperatures exceeding uh, 420 degrees for continental cylinders, 440 degrees for lycoming cylinders. That's a little hotter than we usually like to run them, but it's not hot enough to, to hurt anything. And, um, and if you do that, the, the lion's share of the break-in will be complete within an hour. Hmm. Um, and, and once, and, and, and you'll actually, if you're monitoring the cylinder head temperatures, you'll actually see the temperatures come down quite dramatically during that break-in flight. Mm -hmm. um, and is this the, with mineral oil, Mike? It doesn't matter. Um, well, uh, let me let me correct that. It, uh, I'm not a big fan of, of breaking in with mineral oil. That's kind of the traditional way of doing things. I've never seen any evidence that mineral oil is any better for break-in than, than, than regular AD oil. Uh, 
it, it doesn't hurt to use mineral oil for a few hours. I, I, I would definitely get rid of it in less than 10 hours if you have mineral oil in there. I've broken in a lot of cylinders on Aeroshell W100. It works just fine. Um, and and it, the, the, the difference between mineral oil and W100 is that W100 has ashless dispersants that, that, that keep the, the, the inside of the engine cleaner. And so, because running it on mineral oil uh, uh, promotes the the the, the um, development of, of sludge inside the engine, I definitely wouldn't run it on mineral oil for very long. Mm. But if you want to run it for five or ten hours on mineral oil, that's that's fine. I I, I would always dump the brake in oil at no more than ten hours. But definitely uh, no additives or anything that's going to counter. Well, what we don't we don't want to use. There, there are two things we want to avoid when during brake in. We want to avoid um, anything with synthetics in it, because the film strength of synthetics is is quite strong, and we're trying to breach the the oil film during break-in. Uh, just kind of the opposite of what we were trying to do the rest of the time. And the the other thing we don't want is friction modifiers, any any scuff anywhere um, additives that 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 uh, that again minimize friction, because we're trying to maximize friction during this one hour or two that it takes to break the cylinder in. So, you know, if you, I, I love cam guard, but don't use it during break in wait, wait for 25 hours and then start using it or something like that. Uh, don't use W100 plus use W100 if you want to use an, an AD oil um, because W100 plus has, has a bunch of, has, has a butylated triphenyl phosphate, which is a, which is a friction modifier to any scuff agent. Um, and it's probably not something you want to use during break-in, but it's good to use the rest of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- it's it's really pretty much any kind of oil that doesn't have synthetics and doesn't have any scuff agents in it, it's, it will work fine for break-in. Um, the, the other thing we don't want to do is we don't want to um, operate the engine at low power any more than absolutely necessary until we've completed the break-in um, because the the cylinder that before it is broken in the seal between the compression rings and the cylinder wall is not very good and so a lot of hot gases get past those compression rings and will will coke the oil on the cylinder walls into into a very hard varnishy kind of thing that that if it develops called glazing a cylinder will prevent the break-in process from, from completing properly. So we want to minimize ground running time. We, we, we would like to, you know, this is a huge problem for uh, home builders mm-hmm. who, who get finished building a, the, an airframe and they put this brand new engine in there and now they have to do the first flight. And break-in says they should just run the heck out of it. And the fact that this is an untested airframe says, well, we kind of want to tippy toe into this thing. And, and the two are an absolute conflict and it's a real problem for home builders. Most of us don't, don't deal with that problem unless we're, unless we're building home builds, but it is, it, it's a real conundrum for, 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 for home builders. Yeah, um, that makes sense. Uh, you know, another thing that we've seen uh, a fair number of uh, surprising, a, a fair number of, of issues with is installers, just taking cylinders out of a box and throwing them on without checking them, without setting ring gaps, even though 
they have in some cases a big red tag with them or a big tag there or barber pole tag that says hey this is what you do before you install this yeah um, and again it kind of depends who you're getting the cylinder from because you know a, a really good cylinder shop will 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 deliver the cylinder to you with the 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 piston and rings and everything in place and they'll have checked the ring gaps and hone them to proper size and everything. Um, it it kind of depends on 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 how that all plays out. But we we have seen new cylinders go on, run super hot. You go in there with a borescope, you see all sorts of vertical scoring, and it turns out that the that the ring gaps weren't weren't set correctly, and 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 so the um, especially when the cylinder was cold, the the, the there was real abuse going on inside there mm. at the the you know the, there's all these dimensional changes that go on w because we we've got this cylinder that's got a, a steel barrel with a an aluminum piston running inside of it and the aluminum heat you know expands twice as fast as steel and so all kinds of weird stuff is going on and and then the 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 bottom of the cylinder runs a lot colder than the top of the cylinder because the bottom of the cylinder is heat sink to the case and the top of the cylinder isn't and so th there there's even differences in in diameter between the top and the bottom that change as as the cylinder comes up to operating temperature it's a very different situation than what we're used to in, in car engines where everything is liquid cooled and everything is per held to pretty constant temperature uh, we, we, we've got uh, some really interesting dimensional things going on in aircraft cylinders. Wow. There's, there's a lot going on. So Mike, I, I, uh, I really appreciate just giving everyone such, such good insight into how to adapt to this, uh, and, and work with this airworthiness directive, um, as, as well as uh, tips on how to handle things if they have to remove cylinders. I, I have a list and so does everybody else that is volumes long of other things we want to ask you about. Yeah, so you know, the one, one, thing, one thing we did not talk about, which might be worth like a couple of sentences before we shut this off, is, is the fact that um, we're in the middle of a huge mechanic shortage. And, and most of the good maintenance shops have schedules that are booked up for a year in advance. Mm -hmm. And to all of a sudden now say we've got 2,000 engines that have to have cylinders removed and these and these uh, the, these uh, the retaining rings checked, there's no capacity in the system to do this. And I'm I'm concerned that 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 there are going to be a, a bunch of aircraft owners that wind up grounded for an extended period of time simply because there's no capacity in the shops to to do this. Yeah, Continental is volunteering to pay for it all. But that doesn't solve the problem of where we're going to get the mechanic, the man hours to, to, to get this done. This is a huge problem. That's an excellent, excellent point. I mean, when you run the numbers, you're at nearly 6,000 man hours. If there's 2,000 engines to be inspected and, and uh, you're talking about anywhere from, well, maybe it's less than that, right? Maybe 4,000. 4, but it, still, that's a lot of man hours to all of a sudden invent and find in a system that's swamped, as you mentioned, with shops that are already booked out. Hey, not to not to mention the fact that 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 is there fisto capacity to suddenly issue about a thousand ferry permits <laughs> to get these <laughs> airplanes moved. 
That's another thing that I don't think the FAA really spends a lot of time thinking about when they issue an AD is is how how, how are we actually going to get this done? You mm-hmm. know, yeah, yeah, we we all agree it should be done, but how are we going to get it done? Yeah, a lot of moving a lot of moving parts to this stuff. You know, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's gonna it it's gonna be interesting to see how this plays out and uh, whether there are any. But you know, I've, I've always said I I would much rather fly behind a 500 hour past TBO engine than 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 a than a, a, a 25 hour engine. And this is just another one of those times when I'm glad I have some over TBO engines to fly behind. Yeah. Well, if there's any silver linings to be found in, in any of it, uh, which I'm always looking for the silver lining, one of them is I, is I think we're setting a standard here that I'm hoping the next uh, company has to live up to of, you know, what your warranty coverage is going to be, how quickly you step up to the, plate, yeah. the corporate citizenship level. I, I, I do think Continental's done the right thing, and I, wanna, I want that to be the, the gauge that we use then with the next one that comes out. because with all, again, I've said with all the challenges that we've had over the past few years, with supply chain, with staffing, et cetera, I have to believe as much as I don't want to, that this is not the last, you know, <laughs> AD that's going to drop on us yeah. in the next few years. And so we want this to mean that that every company knows this is what we have to do now to stand behind our product and to support people that are actually in the field instead of making it their problem completely and maybe throughout this we'll actually train some more mechanics and we'll start to get a lot more people comfortable with proper technique for cylinder uh, removal and installation yeah i was we, really we happy a lot of them to do. That, that, that in 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 the in the msb continental did have a paragraph that said use torque plates which is not something i've often seen continental talk about but they did in this particular case and i was happy to see that Bill, if if there's four thousand cylinder removal and installations that are going to be done, at, uh, <laughs> then uh, yeah. at very least, then then the guess is that we're gonna people are gonna get used to it. They're gonna get good at it, doing it right, hopefully. Yep. Well, Mike, thank you so much. I hope you will come back in order for us to talk about a million more topics having to of do course. with aviation maintenance. I love having you on the show. Everyone no, I, enjoy, I, I enjoy these discussions, Jeff. So let's let's definitely do it again. You got it. Thank hopefully you so not over an AD. Let's try to no, find something happier to talk about. <laughs> Have a wonderful night, Mike. Thanks. Okay, you too. Night, everybody. And to all of you, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to join us here on Social Flight Live. We have a really spectacular show also coming for you next Tuesday evening. That is Tuesday, March 14th at 8 p.m. Please join us. We have Heather Penny here who uh, will be joining us. She is the former Air Force pilot. She's an F-16 pilot on 9-11, dispatched to take down Flight 93 before it reached its target. And there was no time for them to arm her aircraft. She accepted a mission completely unarmed, in order to take that aircraft down and sacrifice her life to save the lives of others. We know how the story ended because the passengers that took over that flight um, brought that flight down, uh, saving others in the process before she arrived on scene, speeding there in her F-16. But it is a fascinating story, along with the rest of the stories of her life 
uh, in the cockpit. And so please join us next Tuesday at 8 o'clock. That's Tuesday, March 14th, with Heather, quote, Lucky is her nick is her call sign, Heather Lucky Penny from the Air Force joining us. We will then be off for sun and fun and, uh, and another week there. And we'll be back on Tuesday, April 4th, with EA President Jack Pelton talking about this year's air venture. Until next time, I'm Jeff Simon for Social Flight. Blue skies. Thank you.